You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. As a Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange listener, we'd love to offer you 20% off everything on the sarahraven.com website, including our sweet peas. Just use the code PODCAST20I before the 9th of December. T's and C's apply. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson and Sarah Raven. This week, Sarah is off, but I am joined by someone who's created one of my favourite gardens in the UK. And I've got wonderful memories of visiting Eastern Wald Gardens, which is in the Lincolnshire countryside, but it's quite close to Grantham. And it's nestled in a valley with the beautiful river Ritham snaking through it. And it's famous for its sweet peas, thanks to... Ursula Chomley, who joins me now. And Ursula, you discovered the garden, didn't you? Was it about 25 years ago now? Yeah, so when we got married, we moved here and the village had been like Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. During the First World War, the big house had been a hospital and during the Second World War, it had been used as an army barracks. And um, the really the house was in a terrible state of disrepair by the time Fred's grandfather really came back to the house after the war. So in 1951, he made for him the heartbreaking decision to pull the house down. And really Mm. that took the heart out of the village and it just became a collection of houses rather than a big house with, you know, in the middle of a village. Uh, So when we came here, it was totally overgrown. Uh, There were trees 30 foot high. There was ivy, brambles, elder ragwort and and sycamores everywhere and not really not much else so you can imagine when I said to my husband in about 2000 do you think we can look at restoring the gardens his response wasn't totally polite and you live when you go to Grantham now is it is it right that you live in the only bit that's left of it which is like the gatehouse turrets so we live in the Dower House, which is where mm. Granny lived when the family moved in, which is a few hundred yards away from where the house was. And mm. the gatehouse forms the main entrance to the gardens with the stables. Yeah. So that's like the remnants of what would have been a large stately home, which was pulled down, is it? Exactly. Yeah, you've done very good. I, I I remember quite well, even though I visited once, the layout of it. There's a beautiful courtyard, isn't there, which has got like you do plant cells in there and then you've got a lovely area that's for cream teas. Yes. So the, the bones you've used very beautifully to create this garden, you know, very reminiscent of what would have been around the beautiful grand house. And it's wonderful to see that in a way. Mm, yeah, it's very unusual layout as well. Mm, beautiful. So coming bang up to date, what you've become famous for after years of weeding and pulling out all these fuggish plants, amazingly, you've become famous for for sweet peas. I remember reading about you and sweet peas. Can you remember the first time you were able to grow sweet peas after all the the brutal work of getting the garden back to being ship shape? Well, we had these huge tractors on site, which were doing almost as much damage as as taking away things. And we just chose one corner of the garden where we could grow annuals. And actually, I think it was about the time that Sarah's cutting garden books came out. So we used to grow annuals. And um, one of them, of course, was the sweet pea. 
we've discovered that Fred's grandfather used to grow them here for sending to market in Nottingham. Mm. And then a couple of years ago, we found an old illustration of sweet peas painted round an old picture of the house from about 1900. So there's a long tradition of growing sweet peas here. Mm. But what is it about them that you particularly fell for? I think, well, firstly, there was something we could grow. I mean, right. our valley is, is very cold. It has, it's on limestone, so we can grow wildflowers. Mm. And uh, really, at some stages, the garden feels like the Serengeti. There's so much wildlife in it. And uh, annuals were a good place to start. And um, the scent of a sweet pea is so reminiscent for me of my childhood. And uh, as most people would say, their grandparents' gardens. And, and it's the same for me. Mm. And each year you're you're breeding or trialing different varieties. I love looking on your website. There's always an, another variety added that a lot of other places aren't stocking because you you almost have your own breeding program, sweet peas, don't you, to save the seeds? Yes, we do. So we save all our seed, and our seed don't, doesn't always look as perfect as some of the seed that's come, but its, it's germination mm. rate is just as good. But it's had to put up with the English climate, and uh, most sweet pea growers now are sending their sweet peas to California or New Zealand to grow. Really? Yeah. So we like to think that our sweet peas seed has actually had seasons in this country, so it's better adapted Mm. to um, our climate. Certainly our experience is that our sweet peas are very tolerant of cold springs. Right, because it's used to, it's got that almost vitality of being grown in our climate rather than being being seed that's come from a, a different climate, you think that affects has a better success rate? I mean, I couldn't say for sure, but anecdotally, it seems to work for us. Yeah. I like how you grow your sweet peas quite hunkily up sheet netting, isn't it? You have a, a role of, of, is it sheet netting for each variety? Yes, that's right. Tell me about why that is helpful. Well, I went down to Wisley to look at the um, sweet pea trials there, which is always an interesting thing to do. And um Next to it, they were growing carnations in drums on sheep wire. And I thought, oh, I think that might work for sweet peas because you get the most growth from a sweet pea at the top of the cane, not at the bottom. So if you grow them on wigwams, it's illogical, really, because you've got most growth near the top. So growing them on a straight structure, whether it's for cordon growing or whether, we, like us, we allow them to grow as bushes, seems to make more sense. Mm. Because when I when I first saw it, I always thought, oh, does the wire get too hot for the tendrils? But obviously it doesn't. They're able to latch on to the wire quite happily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you know, we've had some really t- high temperatures this year and that did prevent extra flowering, but the tendrils seemed totally unaffected by the heat generated on the on the wire. I'd not, I'd not even thought of that. But, yeah, they, see, they seem to grow as sturdily as ever. Hmm. And are you using lots of muck for your sweet peas? Are the, are the beds enriched every winter before you're planting the next crop? What's your favourite sweet pea feed? Yeah, so we use um, green manure, and then we use uh, we feed them the whole the whole. You know, we feed them as soon as the weather's warm enough. Because if you feed them and they put on masses of growth, and then it gets cold again, so we tend to be more restrained about feeding them early in the season. And then mm. as the season goes on, you really want to think of them like tomatoes. They are gross feeders, so. We're not feeding them tomato feed as such, but they have they do need that amount of feed to keep them going. Hmm. The reason I wanted to talk to you is compared to Sarah, you're you're in probably a harder part of the country, and I know Sarah in Sussex, she's planting her 
put autumn sweet peas out normally in, in April. Are you doing the same or do you have to be a bit more cautious when you're planting out your, your seedlings? What happens, we, we had a, a disaster year when the pigeons decided to have a go at our sweet peas. Having having just never touched them, they decided to have a go at them. So uh-huh. on those drums that we were talking about, we put fleece around the bottom 50 centimetres. And we found that that's an ideal growing conditions as well for the early sweet peas. So we can sometimes put them out in March because they've been out all winter under just under some simple cover and we can put them out sometimes in March and then put this fleece around the drum so they're not they've got nothing to shelter the top of them but it's just holding that that air in overnight which just seems to just keep the frost off them and allow them to continue to grow yeah because we're we're talk- I'm talking to you in uh, almost middle of September so have you started to sow your sweet peas yet do you like to sow in the autumn or do you like to sow in the winter what's What's your preferred time to sow your sweet peas? When we first started, we used to sow in the autumn, but we've got such long autumns now that it seems to mm. be a trend that it's warmer for longer. So we're actually pushing back all the time when we sow. So we're really into November now for our autumn sowing. Right. And then we will do another sowing again in the spring. And sometimes they flower together and sometimes separately, but we're, we're hedging our bets so that we definitely get a a good crop of them because obviously it's important that when we open for sweet peas that we have plenty of sweet peas to show people yes (laughs) (laughs) and how many sweet peas do you have to have to sow to get that impact because when you walk into your cutting garden it is when you open for sweet pea week and all the the dates of your various you have a lovely calendar of the garden of when each plant that you love is in flower so your season starts with snowdrops it does how many sweet pea plants do you have to grow to get that impact? Well, you don't want to go too mad, actually. So we'll probably only have five five plants on a on a on a support. Right. Um, I think if you get too many, you end up with a lot of smaller flowers, and we're trying to get one plant to grow extremely well. So that's what we're aiming for. And this year we've we've got a little sort of breeding program. It's it's quite ad hoc, but we've grown. A sweet pea called toffee apple, which I mean, just never stops flowering. It has so much flower on it, and um, that's one that we we didn't breed it, but we were sent Winston Churchill, and it came up as this um, grandiflora, which is an old fashioned heritage variety. Mm. It came up as this red, but much smaller than Winston Churchill, and we've grown it for about five years now, and it's, it comes true every year. Flowers incredibly well and so really happy about that sweet pea it's got a lovely name too yeah well we we that was our, our name we we named it so um good name it's, it's, yeah it's red <laughs> red flowers and green leaves so it just sort of reminded me of the colors of the toffee apple so great name and then we've got one that we have deliberately bred which is one called we've called pink pimpernel because it originally came from purple pimpernel and that is the brightest, wildest pink you've ever seen. Um, and this is the first year that we've had enough seed to start to distribute it. And it's come true now for three years. So we're happy that we stabilised it. And um, it's, it's exciting to have our own variety. Mm. Um, when you're letting your sweet peas obviously go to seed, at what point do you decide to stop cutting the flowers so you get enough pods to save? It is always a balance um, trying to decide because we need enough flowers for the visitors to see for three or four weeks at least. And then we think, 
if we miss the boat, we'll end up with sort of much smaller flowers, smaller pods. So we probably let them flower for about a month, maybe six weeks, and then we'll say it looks to, to us like now is the time to let them run up to seed because the vigour is just on the turn of the of the plant. So that's how we balance it. And then to store the seed to to get good, lovely, beefy brown seeds, do you wait till the pods are all brown and crispy or do you pick them before they go brown? And then obviously I'm presuming you have to be very careful about mice, don't you? Yeah, very careful about mice. If you leave them some years, you leave them too long, they'll climb up the, the canes and uh, eat the eat the, uh, <laughs> the, the sweet peas straight from the pod. If you want to collect your own sweet peas, if you have a green pod that you can feel the oil on it, that's too early. Then it goes a sort of yellowy colour, still too early. And when it goes brown but not dry, that's the moment. Because if you miss that moment, the pod then takes matters into its own hands and the seed pod splits open and spins the seed and throws it across the garden, so you've lost it. So it's ah. getting that moment when it's going from yellow to brown, but before it's totally dry, that you, you need to harvest the seed. Mm. Right. Okay, well, that's a really good tip, actually, because I think I've missed the boat on a lot of mine. They've all pinged around the garden. <laughs> yeah, you can hear them. You can hear them popping, can't you? Yeah, yeah. crackling. Yeah. The, what, the other great love of mine of your garden is the incredible, beautiful meadows that you've got. And I love the fact that you've been quite brave and done something that I've not seen anywhere else do really, which is incorporate roses into into meadowland. Could you tell me why you decided to do that? Because it is so beautiful and I, I don't think any other gardens have got rose meadows. No, I mean, it attracts a lot of interest, um, which is really satisfying. My mother-in-law used to grow stands of roses in the lawn and they always look really attractive because you could see right around the rose bushes and they look very healthy as well. And I just, when we first started looking at what to do with the main wall garden over the river, I started to look at how we might incorporate height into a meadow and came up with this idea of putting roses into the meadow. And they are they do stay very, very healthy because of it. And the idea is you get these waving grasses with the beautiful flowers exploding over the top. I mean, Lady of Shalott is really stunning with it. The Lark Ascending is another one that's very good for uh, using in meadows. And then some of the older roses as well, even the Ragozas, if you've got a wild area that's you don't do much with, putting a stand of five of them in really adds colour, scent, movement. It's worked really well. Mm, and it, it was genius of you. I mean, for a lot of people, I think the idea of putting roses into a meadow, it will go against the grain of of what they think roses need. You know, we're all told all they need space, they need constant mulching, constant watering. When you first started, did you cut out big bits of the meadow and put them in? Or Yes. I mean, we still have to weed them. And, and put them in beds. They, they, we tried leaving the grasses to grow right up to them and that the, the roses couldn't compete with that. So they are in beds, but you won't see them from a distance. From a distance, you'll see a whole effect of, of roses in, in, in long grasses. Hmm. So, I mean, it, I love that you mentioned the Serengeti because I've seen photos when the grass does go that lovely brown and then you've got the, just that gorgeous clout of the roses yeah, i'm yeah. guessing you are fond of savannas because i remember you'd got these amazing metal giraffe sculptures yeah, you yeah. still got those yeah i still got those <laughs> fantastic. Um, well that was because we've got uh we've got a full cicacia and a crab apple tree both of which have grown 
the branches have grown as you would see trees in Africa growing. And so these, these giraffes look in the spring, if you look carefully, you're like, oh, that's okay. I get it. That's what that's, that's about there. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got a lot of wildlife of your own in the valley, haven't you? We have, yeah. Yeah. And there are the latest visitor is the badgers. It's been so dry. They're coming into the pickery. They're um, heaving their butts over the fence and um, digging in the grass in the pickery. But they'll go away as soon as it, as soon as it rains again. But at the moment, yeah. Uh, it's not great for visitors, but I just have this picture in my head of these cute patches <laughs> sort of heaving over the fences <laughs> and, and ruffling along. And they're probably eating all the, um, you know, what are those big grubs that grow in uh, grass? Chafer grubs. Chafer grubs, exactly. They're probably eating eating those, which is yeah. all to the good. So, uh, And they eat the wasp nests out mm. of the uh, meadows as well. So that saves our hide when we come to – yeah, when we come to uh, – uh, to cut the grass, it can be really hard. You don't know there's a wasp nest there. And um, then they come. Oh. You sort of go, oh, wow, there seems to be some flies around. Then you get stung and then you have to start running because um, <laughs> we've disturbed oh, the, the wasp nest as we cut it. Wow. They eat them. I didn't know they ate wasp nests. Goodness. Like little bears. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it, they, that only happens in a dry year. Mm. The, the river famously floods occasionally, doesn't it? And that that must bring its own challenges but you i know you get kingfishers as well thanks to the river is it is it good to have a river that's you know allowed to have its own thing how do you manage that well the river itself is spring fed through the park which is all around the gardens and um it winds through the bottom of the garden and then there's an ornamental bridge over it but most of the year it's not much more than a couple of meters wide I mean, it really is like a stream mm. at some at some stages of the year, and then it will get a heavy rainfall, and it absorbs all that water, and then the whole of the bottom lawn floods right up to the steps, and it's quite dramatic. But it, the Victorians, thankfully, have put channels all the way around that bit of the garden, and they still seem to be holding. And that drops; it will drop in a matter of hours, and leave this sediment on the lawn, so we don't have to feed no. that lawn. So there is. There are advantages. Your your season starts with snowdrops, which you're equally famous for. You have an amazing snowdrop festival, don't you, where snowdrops are put into gorgeous moss hanging baskets and the garden is just a beautiful white carpet in places. How long has it taken you to develop a, a snowdrop garden and establish them, or were they there when you when you moved? Well, they were one of the first things that were here when we first moved here. And as we cleared away all the brash, these beautiful drifts of mm. snowdrops appeared, but they weren't connected really. So what we've done over the years is when they flowered and the foliage is starting to go over, we dig them up and we move them around. And now we've got this bank, which is just all snowdrops. It's We're not trying to force a, a, a narrative on the garden. It is really designed to look semi-natural. And we do have big beds where we have hellebores and cyclamen and irises and things that go with the snowdrops. But the main bit we're trying to keep as, you know, almost as pure as possible, real, to create a real feeling of the beginning of spring, really. And that's, you know, that's what everybody loves about a snowdrop is that it, it marks the turning of the year, really. Mm. 
So you you really recommend lifting snowdrops after they've flowered and dividing them in the green. You're not planting snowdrops in the autumn. You do it after they finish flowering. That's a big job for you each year. Yeah, it's a big job and we'll forget it if we leave it till the autumn and then we can't find the snowdrops. And uh, So it's easier to do it while you can see the, see the foliage. Yes. Yeah. And in terms of other autumn bulbs, what bulbs will your gardeners and you be planting this autumn for next spring? What are your favourite things? So we plant tulips every year because we're on very light soil and they just don't last from one year to the next. So we treat them as bedding. Mm. I love planting hyacinths. I don't think they're planted enough in gardens because they have a very specific flowering period, which is between the snowdrops and the tulips. So they're a really good thing to put under trees. And then they, you know, you, you might get a big spike one year, but next year they'll be more delicate and you'll have maybe only... Mm, six to ten florets on each spike instead of a big you know commercial looking hyacinth so those i love i love little blue bulbs the china doxes and we're increasingly trialing new alliums there's a very nice one i mean i know it's later flowering but there's a lovely new one called graceful beauty have you seen that one i haven't no what's that like it's quite short it's really good in prairie plantings and it's a it's a white flower with a pink center so it's like a it's bigger than Allium cernum. It doesn't have all the foliage that's so much of a problem, but it's probably thirty to forty centimeters high. I think mm. that's lovely. Yeah. Have you grown um, magic? Sarah's crazy about magic and summer drummer. Do you like those two? Is magic the big tall white one? No, it, it's purple. It looks it's very similar to one called Miami. But what's nice about it is the stems like a crazy swan neck. Oh, um, okay. So rather than being upright, yeah. it, it's quite yeah. yeah. So that's that's one of mine and Sarah's new favourites. But we'll we'll look out for your favourite too, definitely. So so Eastern World Garden, are you open? What are your opening times so people know how to visit you? So we open from February until the end of September, and we're open mm. five days a week, eleven till four. You can visit our website, which is visiteastern.co.uk, and um, that'll tell you all the opening times. And then our shop and our coffee room stays open till Christmas. So you can come Christmas shopping. Lovely. And you're still selling all your sweet peas online, aren't you? All the varieties that are exclusive to you. We are, yes. Lovely. Yeah, and they come in their tins. So they'll make a nice all present tins. as well. That's nice. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm I'm going to definitely try and see you next year because it's been far too long and you're not too far away from Nottingham. Well, I hope you will because there's been a lot of changes since you were last year. So yeah, uh, it would be lovely excited, if you did. But I'm glad the giraffes are still there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Ursula, thanks so much. It's been lovely to talk to you about sweet peas and roses in grass. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Grow Cookie to Range with Arthur and Ursula talking about sweet peas. I was thrilled to listen to that, and I've definitely got Eastern Wall Garden on my list of must visits for 2023. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Shane Connolly, who's one of my very favourite ever florists, who is all about sustainability and that really we do not and should not need our roses from Kenya. We should use our gardens and our outdoor spaces to give us beautiful things that we bring inside to the house. He's an absolute disciple of Constance Spry, and we're going to talk about sustainable Christmas, really, without it being sanctimonious or serious because Shane is all about beauty but beauty without damage to the planet. 
Well, I loved listening to that episode with Ursula and Arthur chatting about all things sweet peas. As a Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange listener, we'd love to offer you 20% of everything on the sarahraven.com website, including our sweet peas. Just use the code PODCAST20I before the 9th of December. T's and C's apply. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com.